I would just say I don't see the applications out there that are ready for use right now. I mean, I do see the things that are in development, and I think some of them look very promising. So I don't really know that I'm bullish or bearish overall. I guess I'm just sort of sitting here waiting to be impressed. I'm Chad Ming, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law, where each week we'll talk to a different mover or shaker in the legal and technology field. We'll learn a little about them, what they've been up to, and hopefully get some real-world tips that will help lawyers better use technology in their legal practices. In today's episode, backed by popular demand, is Christian Audi and Zach Smolinski. They're talking about blockchain. In our Legal Founder segment, we talk to Basha Rubin and Mira Levitt about their startup, Priori Legal a platform that helps corporate counsel find talented lawyers. So a little more than a year ago, I had these two guys on the podcast. My name is Zach Smolinski. I've practiced intellectual property and uh, corporate and contract law for about 20 years. And I have partnered with Nelson Rosario. We have a law firm here in Chicago called Smolinski Rosario Law, where we work primarily with mid-sized tech companies and handle their legal needs. Uh, my name is Christian Audi. I'm a partner at Much Law. I practice in data privacy where we help small, mid, large companies deal with needs of all kinds. They talked about blockchain and how it related to the practice of law. To refresh, this is how Christian describes blockchain. Blockchain is a distributed ledger. In the case of Bitcoin, it is a distributed ledger of transactions. And distributed in this case means that um, more than one network participant or more than one computer or more than one node in the terminology sees the exact same ledger. That's essentially what it is. To just give you a basic example, let's say that I am going to send $100 to Bob and I write an email I, there's a ledger showing that I have maybe $1,000 in the bank, and that ledger is shared with two other people. I write an email to these two other people, a reply to all the email, and I say, I'm going to send $100 to Bob. These two other people say, okay, well, let's check to make sure that you have that $100. They then race to check the ledger to make sure that I have that $100. They confirm, the winner confirms that I do, and they publish the transaction. The $100 goes to Bob. I have $900 left, and there is a new ledger. That is essentially what a blockchain is. I kicked off our 2019 talk by asking the guys what had changed in the blockchain world. Interestingly, the guys didn't seem as bullish on blockchain as they did when I talked to them in 2017. That's not to say they still aren't very into it. They just pointed out that public interest might be waning a little bit. But on the positive front, rather than viewing it as a novelty or flavor of the month, people are building businesses based on blockchain technology, and they're getting more serious about building real businesses. Well, I think, you know, in a way you could say everything's changed enormously and you can have that perspective. And then in a lot of other ways, things haven't changed at all. When we spoke, it was December of 2017, right? December, around there, November, December of 2017, we were right in the middle of a fever, you know, of, of Bitcoin fever and of ICO fever. There was a, a lot of exuberance, perhaps irrational exuberance in the market. And now there isn't, you know, if you look at ICO activity, then compared to now, I mean, it's completely fallen off a cliff. The price of Bitcoin is obviously very different. And, and so those are big changes. So what's 
Let's, let's talk about that. And by the way, this, this voice is Christian. That's one thing I think most people have read about in the past year is the fluctuation in value of, of Bitcoin in, in particular, but there's other, other types of cryptocurrency out there. What, what's going on with that? Well, you know, I, I think that y- you've seen all across the board, almost uniformly, you know, prices plunge from their December 2017 levels. I think there are a lot of different reasons for that, you know, but at the same time, you know, Bitcoin is still here, right? There's, there's, there was enormous interest from retail investors, enormous interest from lots of different sectors, and that interest has waned and there's been a lot of pessimism in the marketplace and the price is lower, but at the same time, Bitcoin's still here. People are still talking about things like Bitcoin ETFs, other different offerings in the marketplace. And so, you know, to a certain extent, notwithstanding the price fluctuations, we're still kind of in the same place. Bitcoin's still number one. Ethereum's still number two or three, depending on how you measure the market. And those Uh, are both cryptocurrencies, Those are both cryptocurrencies, yeah. And so, you know, there's been a lot of change in the price, but in terms of how those coins are positioned, both relative to each other and in the consciousness of the market, not a lot has changed. So, Zach, since you were here last, what do you see as big changes, if anything, in the blockchain world? Yeah, I would echo a lot of what Christian said. You can't deny that, obviously, the decline in the price has been huge. And I would say that the captivation of the public mind by the technology has waned as well. I mean, if you were going to pick a time to do a blockchain podcast, November 2017 was probably it. So I planned it. I planned it. (laughs) I'm sort of curious. I I guess I would like to say if, if this podcast doesn't perform as well. It's not our fault. It's, uh, it's really the fault of the market. No one, no one cares anymore. But people do care. And I would say that are we having dinner table conversations at Thanksgiving about Bitcoin like we were 13, 14 months ago? Like Probably not. People just sort of in, in the mass mindset, the craze has come and gone. At the same time, you've got a lot of people who are working very hard within this technology to build something that is impressive and something that is worth talking about beyond a number going up or a number going down, uh, beyond a, a cryptocurrency value increasing or decreasing. So, you know, so-called crypto winter that we're living through, part of the narrative uh, I think that we're seeing on crypto Twitter and, uh, you know, various crypto news outlets online is that we're seeing that this is a, re- a retraction in the marketplace, but also, uh, in a sense, a chance for developers and um, builders in the space to get back to basics, ignore the noise, okay? You're not going to launch a coin and immediately have $100 million in your bank account, so figure out how to build a business. So I think those are the two changes I see. One, a decrease in the public mindset, a decrease in terms of how much people care about this generally, but also an increase in the amount of actual effort that's going on to build something that will sustain this crypto winter and beyond. One thing that both Zach and Christian agreed to change since the last time they were on the podcast is stepped-up enforcement by the SEC and the CFTC. That's the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Specifically, these agencies are scrutinizing ICOs or initial coin offerings to make sure they're complying with the law. An ICO is a way for companies to raise money by offering cryptocurrencies or coins in exchange for investment dollars. You might wonder why the SEC and the CFTC think they can regulate cryptocurrencies. And the theory goes that these ICOs are really securities offerings subject to government regulation. While many in the crypto community would argue that they really aren't security offerings, but rather a value for utility tokens, which on a very basic level are like tokens you get at Chuck E. Cheese that can be spent there, have value, but really are no use anywhere else. 
Yeah. So at a really high level, you know, one would imagine that the SEC is going to be primarily concerned with ICOs. Which are initial coin offerings. Which are initial coin offerings, yes. The CFTC would have, or at least has asserted that it has jurisdiction over Bitcoin and would likely, at least theoretically, maybe have jurisdiction over Ethereum and Ether because the SEC has come out in informal commentary and stated that Ether is sufficiently decentralized so that it is not a security. But, you know, what we've seen over the last year has been increased enforcement activity from the SEC. I visited the website today. I counted um, 18 actions commenced, and this in, they're sort of related in spinoff actions, but 18 real actions commenced by the SEC over, over, what period? over the last year relating primarily to, to ICOs, and these include actions against very famous figures like Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khalid, both of whom signed settlement agreements. So you're seeing an uptick in enforcement activity. You're also seeing, I think, um, an increasing pessimism among the public, to echo Zach's comment about ICOs in general. Um, you know, in the middle of 2017, money was pouring into ICOs of all kinds, very, very solid ideas and, and specious ones. And you're just not seeing that sort of robust demand for risk anymore. Does that have anything to do with that the SEC and other government agencies are being a little more aggressive in enforcement? I think somewhat, but I think more than the SEC's actions, it's to do with the fact that there just haven't been returns or even, in many cases, products or, or people fulfilling the roadmaps that they set out when they sought the investments. But, but it's only been a year, though. Yeah, it's only been a year, but, you know, when, when you know you see things like exit scams or you see things of that nature go on, you start getting a little bit more pessimistic about the market in general, and that'll turn off your everyday retail investors that were initially quite excited by the idea of early-stage risk. Zach, what what do you see has been the changes in regulatory or enforcement activity since we were here last? Yes, yeah, I think it's very difficult to tell whether or not the SEC is um, so-called cracking down here. I mean, we're talking about numbers in the low double digits, and it's an agency that has to oversee a lot of different activity. My suspicion is that there's a massive amount of activity going on behind the scenes at the SEC. I don't have any particularly deep insight into the SEC. I don't practice before that that organization. But um, it's generally my sort of outsider's view of the SEC is that it's a very deliberate organization. Um, it's an organization that has a fair amount of resources but can be spread very thin. And it can take quite some time for the SEC to really process through problematic behavior. And so the settlements that we're seeing this year, in some cases, are, are things that they started looking at one and two years ago. I do think that the publicity of these things, the way that these enforcement actions are making it out into the press, are giving people pause. And in a sense, that is the SEC's charge. The SEC is there largely to protect consumers. And if it is retail consumers who are buying into these ICOs and making them into 50 and 100 million and greater money-making opportunities for the founders, then maybe this is happening. That, that information is coming from the SEC and filtering down to the general investor who's now saying, wait a minute, I need to look at, I need to look at more than just a white paper. And I need to see more than just pictures of people who are on a team and titles. I need to know what's actually going on. Who's building this? What's it going to look like when it's done? What's the revenue model look like? A year ago, none of that stuff mattered because you could just end up on some pump room, which 
we can get into what that means. But basically, this would have been a uh, an online um, text messaging forum where certain players will attempt to pump the price of cryptocurrencies. So like a year ago, 18 months ago, you come out with some new cryptocurrency, you come out with some new ICO, you, you get it pumped, and the next thing you know, you're sitting on you know millions and millions of dollars. I just don't think that activity is happening, happening as much anymore. And I think a big part of it is these enforcement actions that Christian has talked about. If you're thinking about doing this and you're seeing people signing these settlement agreements, why would you do that? Then what happens is, well, people start to think about, well, maybe if the SEC is the problem, we avoid the United States as a jurisdiction. And that contains a whole other set of problems. As I mentioned before, when I talked to Zach and Christian this time, I got the feeling that they were not as bullish on blockchain as they were in 2017 when we last had them on the podcast. But that isn't necessarily true. They still see the promise of blockchain, especially for transactions, supply chains, shipping, and for transactions where people don't trust each other. So they are still very much fans of the technology. I would just say I don't see the applications out there that are ready for use right now. I mean, I do see the things that are in development, and I think some of them look very promising. So don't really know that I'm bullish or bearish overall. I guess I'm just sort of sitting here waiting to be impressed. So let's segue into the question then, if you had to guess, what's the next best use? Something that's development or a theory you've heard about or a concept? I'm still so just very much up in the air. I think, I think there's a good chance that the, the Bitcoin maximist, maximalists are right, that, that no one's going to find a compelling use for this technology that doesn't somehow involve the transfer of value in a permissionless way. And, and, and when I say a good use for it, there are plenty of good uses for the technology. The question to me is more, are these uses that are being proposed better than the centralized alternative? than the traditional database alternative. And there's a lot of argument out there as to whether or not traditional databases can do some of the things that blockchain can do. I think as a lawyer, I ask myself, well, what are the applications that I would like to see on this technology that I would like to be able to use on a daily basis? And it's, it's kind of difficult for me to come up with applications. I've, I've had this sense for a long time that really complicated, multi-party, papered up, uh, agreements, M&A, M&A uh, agreements, that sort of thing, where you've got maybe two or three parties, each party having maybe two or three lawyers, and where you need to timestamp those documents and make sure everyone's looking at the exact right thing at the exact right time. That sounds like an interesting application where you might not want to trust a central authority to tell you that you're working on the right document. I don't see that application being developed, and it's pretty niche. It's like It's like a problem I've encountered in my practice. So I don't know that most lawyers are sitting out there saying, wow, I just wish I had a better way of dealing with this and blockchain is the only way it can be done. Well, but just to spark conversation, it's not like our profession is always on the forefront of technological changes either. No, quite not. Certainly not. I've never been accused of that. (laughs) Yeah, and so, but in a sense though, I think the larger question is, what can this technology do for anyone, right? When BlackBerry came out, I think lawyers were among the first people to start using it at a large scale because it allowed us, for better or worse, to take requests from our clients and respond to them very quickly. Law firms glommed on to the utility of that very, very quickly, as with laptop computers, as with, you know, the iPhone, and we're all doing mobile practice now. And so from that very practical standpoint, I mean, I do do agree with you that the law in general tends to be a little slow to adopt, but lawyers 
Not necessarily. I mean, if lawyers see good technology, we're, we're quite capable of understanding it and, and using it for the most part. And again, I do think if, an, if a killer application came along and it was based on this technology, it would be adopted. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, go back to the email. Blackberries, laptops, those are system amplifiers. And I think one of the ways you can think about blockchain, especially in the use cases that I like for it, apart from value, Certainly value makes sense. Uh, I think it also, there are use cases, especially in complex supply chains with parties that don't trust each other. There are a lot of those. Um, you can think of blockchain as, as a system amplifier. I mean, Bruce Schneider just came out with a very, very good, very good article in Wired that completely destroyed permission blockchains. Said there, which is what I'm talking about right now. When I'm talking about a sp- supply chain blockchain, I'm talking about a permissioned blockchain. Which is? Which is a, a blockchain that only select entities have access to. So a, a blockchain that only people in that ecosystem, in that supply chain would have access to. And he said, they're totally uninteresting. This is, I think, a direct quote. He said, they're totally uninteresting. There have been append-only data structures, which is you can add, but you can't take away from something that's previously been written for a very long time, and we've been writing and thinking and talking about them for a very long time. You know, blockchain, maybe it's not the best database, maybe it's not the best way to attack a problem, but it has sparked, I think, in a lot of ways, companies to take a fresh look at the way they're communicating with others, the way they're communicating across supply chains, and I think it's going to, maybe it won't ultimately be the structure that they adopt, but it's generating progress. In other words, if you trust each other enough to trust you are who you say you are, mm-hmm. if you're part of this network, then you probably trust each other enough to set up a central repository to have this stuff happen. And these supply chains where you have multiple parties, yeah, they, they don't necessarily, quote unquote, trust each other, but they, they do know who, they, who, who those other parties are. And they know that they have a common goal in mind, you know, namely to build a supply chain and to get paid for their services, right? So maybe we're drifting a little far afield from the question, but to your question about, you know, are logistics a potential application for this technology? I would say maybe, but I think one of the phenomena we see in the blockchain space is blockchain proponents and and the sort of evangelical blockchain proponents taking a from the technology to the problem approach. In other words, starting with the sense that blockchain technology has something to offer. And here, for example, is a problem that I can apply to blockchain. I can apply blockchain technology to. This makes a lot of sense, by the way, if you're trying to launch an ICO and blockchain is the big word, right? Because how many people were going to invest, you know, millions of dollars into uh, boring old centralized databases for uh, supply chain optimization a year ago? Almost no one. But if you come out and say, I've got a blockchain for, uh, for supply chains, all of a sudden people care, right? But the idea that this technology has something to offer is yet to fully be borne out. But what we have is just an army of people who are wild about the technology and, t- and starting with the technology and then looking out there for spaces where this technology can improve what is out there, okay? Where I think uh, from the consumer standpoint or from the standpoint of the businesses whose problems are going to be solved, they're looking at it from the completely opposite direction, from the 180 degree opposite direction. Not what can blockchain do for me, but rather what is the problem that I have and what is the space of potential solutions from centralized databases, from append-only databases, from technology that existed 20 and 40 and 50 years ago, including in some cases even paper technology, and what is that whole range? And yes, blockchain might be one of them, but 
come and prove it to me that you can offer me something. And I think that for blockchain developers, they would be much better served at this point in time by looking at these problems from the standpoint of the customers that they're trying to reach, rather than saying, hey, I've got this technology that's great. I'm going to go try to apply it to every, pro- every problem known to mankind. By the way, I actually know people who think this technology is going to solve every problem known to mankind. Right. It's a much tougher analysis, right? But he, I, I think that's right. You have to, instead of, you know, blockchain's a buzzword and a hammer looking for a nail, right? And instead of doing that analysis, you almost have to do the exclusionary analysis. You almost have to say, blockchain is going to solve this problem for you and there isn't another solution set out there, and I can prove it to you, that's more efficient, more scalable, better for you. And only in that, that's a very, that's a very small problem set, right? And maybe it's, you know, that problem set doesn't exist, but it's a much smaller world than the world of, of 2017 and even early 2018, where, where we were going to, you know, quote unquote, blockchain everything. We're going to take five away from our talk with Zach and Christian because now it's time for our Legal Tech Founder segment. Today, we're talking to Basha Rubin and Mira Levitt of Priori Legal. Before we get to my conversation with Basha and Mira, I want to mention for each show, there's an episode page at tlpodcast.com. On that page is contact info for the guests, more information about their companies, and there's also links to stuff they talk about. So if you ever want to learn more about any particular episode, our guests, or even get a hold of me, you can do that at tlpodcast.com. In today's Legal Tech Founder segment, we're talking to the founders of Priori Legal. That's a platform that in-house and corporate counsel can use to find and hire top-notch legal talent. Priori has a network of boutique law firms and top legal talent that in-house lawyers can hire by submitting RFPs. Once an RFP is submitted, project managers at Priori match the company's needs to the appropriate attorney. Hey, Basha, Mira, thanks for being with me today. Give us the uh, elevator pitch for Priori Legal. Absolutely. So Priori is a legal marketplace for in-house teams, which means we've built two things. First, a global vetted network of boutique firm attorneys whom we vet using a proprietary data-driven process we've developed. And second, a technology platform that sits on top of that attorney network and aims to drive efficiency at every stage of the process of working with those attorneys from rapid RFP matchmaking all the way through to billing and invoicing. And you guys are both attorneys, correct? Indeed. Uh, what was the inspiration then to, to start the company? So um, I, I, I would guess I would say I'm an attorney in name only, uh, which is to say that I went straight from Yale undergrad to Yale Law School without much idea of what it actually entailed to be a practicing attorney and quickly discovered that while I cared deeply about the legal profession and believed very strongly in how lawyers can drive value for both individuals and businesses, I did not myself feel temperamentally suited to practice law and personally come from a family of entrepreneurs. And it always had the idea that I might at some point start a company. So I figured why not do it when I know less than I ever will about (laughs) business. Um, And so coming out of law school, uh, Mira and I began working on the initial plan for Priori, which was at the time a small business focused legal marketplace centered around price certainty and transparency. And we saw we saw and continue to see an opportunity to use technology and data to make the legal industry more cost effective, efficient, and transparent. And I'll pass the floor to, to Mira to, to add anything. I would only say that, you know, our initial thesis, which which has remained the same throughout this whole venture, is that 
excellent lawyers come in all shapes and sizes and backgrounds, and that the best way to figure out who the right person for you for what you need at any given time is pretty granular data about their experience, what kind of technology tools they work with, um, what kinds of clients they've worked with, what kinds of clients they or what kinds of companies they've negotiated against, and that the more granular data you have, the better fit you can achieve for any given matter. And, you know, when we launched, there was a version of that that was about small small businesses. And we've moved into a space where we're working with larger businesses, but the underlying quality and data thesis is the same. And what year did you launch the company? Uh, 2013. And it, it sounds like you've kind of made a pivot, but not a complete pivot. Is that what I'm getting here? That's absolutely right. We, we see it as a pivot. It took a lot of soul searching, and by soul, I mean data examining, <laughs> uh, to, to realize uh, where the bigger, the bigger and more exciting opportunity is. We still, we still care very passionately about the legal needs of small businesses, but saw that we were able to get a lot more traction working with in-house legal teams. And that did entail a pretty significant set of product changes. So if you see a person on the street and they're talking to you and wanting to learn more about the the company and the the product. What do you tell them the features are, the benefits from using Priori? If they are in-house counsel, it saves you time and money in finding the right lawyers for any project and being able to identify excellent boutique firm attorneys who have precisely the right expertise and experience and can ultimately drive cost efficacy. On the attorney side, I would just say it's business you don't have right now. And it's business that is very hard for many small firm attorneys to get because we're working with significant enterprises. So let's talk about that for a minute. It's two-sided. You have the client side, the company side coming to the site to hire attorneys to do legal work. But then you also have attorneys offering their, their skills and their experience to those purchasers of legal services. How do you attract and how do you decide who is going to be on the platform as an attorney providing services? We have, you know, we grow both um, organically. We get a lot of inbound attorneys and firms that have heard about us through um, either through clients or through uh, lawyers in their own network who are already in our network. We also, you know, for practice areas um, and markets that are particularly hot, um, we reach out proactively to lawyers and firms who meet our sort of minimum um, requirements for onboarding, you know, once we, once we, that's sort of the initial step, we do um, a, a range of vetting. So all attorneys complete our automated application process that produces a score. We talk to top quartile lawyers after that and do an interview as well as reference checks. And you said there's some minimum requirements. What are those? Well, uh, only in that if we're proactively reaching out to people, it's because the their practice areas and their overall profile look like they would score highly on that automated application. It, are there any practice areas that you do not provide attorneys for? Yeah, it's a B2B platform. So we serve the full range of B2B needs, but the sort of more individual needs like family law and individual criminal matters are something that we don't cover on the platform. Who, who's the sweet spot? Who, who's the best type of client suited to find a good attorney on the site? Yeah, we, we work with a range of different large enterprises, everything from traditional Fortune 1000 companies to uh, fast-growing Silicon Valley uh, startups and aircraft. Uh, well, cool. Sounds really interesting. And if people want to learn more about the company, where do they find you? They can find us at 
Priori, P-R-I-O-R-I, legal, spelled the normal way, dot com. Okay, let's get back to our talk about blockchain with Christian and Zach. A couple of years ago, it was all the rave to say that blockchain was yet another piece of technology that was going to make certain legal tasks and even some lawyers obsolete. So I asked the guys if they're of the belief that a great use of blockchain is in transactions where people don't trust each other, isn't the legal arena the perfect use case for that type of technology? They had an interesting take on that. The legal world exists within a, a set of structures that has evolved over thousands of years. So litigation is built around the concept that the parties litigating don't trust each other. Uh, the lawyers to those parties don't trust each other. The judge doesn't necessarily trust either lawyer or either party. And the jury doesn't trust any either lawyer or either party. And uh, thousands of years of evolution of these types of systems, only now have we arrived at the uh, platonically perfect system we have in the United States. I'm joking, of course. Um, but you, we are playing within a set of rules that has evolved over thousands of years. Blockchain plays within a set of rules that has probably evolved probably at least since the time that game theory was initiated as a field of study. So let's give, you know, let's give blockchain something like 100 years or 150 years worth of evolution that kind of led to the technology and, and now is being touted as the savior for all of human transactions, right? I don't know which one I necessarily would trust more, but I think you have to give the weight to the system that has 2,000 years plus of evolution as opposed to the system that has existed for 10 years and based on 150 years of mathematics. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when it comes to the question of trust or the question of, you know, dealing with trust between the parties, we've developed multiple systems to deal with that issue. We've got, you know, if you don't trust somebody but you want to do business with them, what do you do? You enter into a contract with them right? And you are trusting an institution on the back end. That institution's called a court, and you're trusting them to enforce your contract, right? I think that, you know, and, and the, the Schneider article actually makes a good point about, about this. What blockchain does is it is it replaces trust in a set of institutions. You know, maybe let's just take Bitcoin as an example. Replaces trust in banks with trust in technology. And his point is, is that... Trust in banks? Well, is, that, is, that, is that an oxymoron? See, that's the thing, right? That, that, and that's a certain perspective. You know, you're, you're trusting an intermediary whenever you do a credit card transaction at 7-Eleven. That intermediary is going to process your transaction. And you're, what Bitcoin does is substitute that trust for trust in technology and coding. And what the article points out is, is well, you know, that trust comes with a lot of cost, too. It comes with the cost that, for example, if you lose your private key to your Bitcoin, uh, you just lose it. There's no recourse. Your password. Your password. Password. If you lose your password, you just lose it. There's no recourse, and it's gone. And a lot of people, that, that's not a really good trade-off. But I think for some people, I think more than a negligible number of people, that might actually be quite valuable. That might actually be worth it. And, you know, I think that that in part accounts for the continuing sort of robustness and survivability of Bitcoin over what has been now, you know, what, three or four Zach bear markets. Yeah, yeah. You just said when people don't trust each other, they enter into a contract. But isn't one of the most touted things, or at least a year ago, one of the most touted things, the buzzword was smart contract. 
Yeah, a smart contract is an interesting term. I, I just think it's it's, a, it's a, still a buzzword. People are still talking about the use of smart contracts. People are employing smart contracts and building them on a regular basis. And so, in a nutshell, what are they, high level? A smart, con- a smart contract is essentially a, a piece of code, in many cases a relatively simple script that operates within a blockchain computational uh, platform. So a, uh, a smart contract, the basic smart contracts will do something like sit out there on the platform and for every bit of ether that the smart contract takes in from some wallet, it will send to, a, to another wallet. So there's an interesting interview out there with uh, the inventor of Ethereum who's... Vitalik Buterin. Yeah, with Vitalik Buterin. And, and one of the things he says is he wishes that he had never used the term smart contract because really these things are quite simple and they, they look almost nothing like, like contracts. They're just bits of code. So he has sort of lamented this idea because he thinks that the term smart contract made a lot of people pay attention to this type well, of technology who never would have otherwise. In Zabos, Zabo originated the term in 94. Zabo, Nick Zabo, Zabo is, is the guy who sort of theorized smart contracts back in 94 and has also regretted the term. I think for a legal audience, if we were to make an analogy, a close analogy, and this is by no means perfect, think of a letter of credit. Okay, when you think about a smart contract, think of a letter of credit because letters of credit are pretty much automatic, right? You present them to the bank and the bank gives you the money. It doesn't ask kind of how you got it. It doesn't ask what happened. It's just, I give you something that's signed. Here you go. Here's your letter of credit. Give me the money. And that's what a letter of credit is. Yeah, it's a very mechanical, very rote process. It's a very rote process. And for the most part, that's what smart contracts are right now. They're just very, very simple little scripts that sit sit there out in the ether, and they take in coins, and they establish coins, and they they distribute coins. And so there's not really much contractual about it. Of course, that's the very simple side of the smart contract world. The utopian side of the smart contract world is that eventually these contracts are going to get much more complex. And what we're going to do is we're going to get to a point where these contracts are being used to carry out more complex transactions. So the smart contract utopians will say, yeah, eventually within four or five years, we're going to be doing real estate closings using smart contracts where nobody has to enter a room to sign the documents and everything happens online and you're going to have a certain amount of ether deducted from your account and the smart contract is also going to go out there and grab uh, the title and make sure that that's clear and it's so that this sort of computational script will take care of all those contracting duties we're we're a long way away from that would be my suspicion it's not you know super crazy because all the icos that we were talking about in 2017 and 2018 those were all smart contracts on Ethereum. I mean, though, for the most part, those were people putting in Bitcoin or Ethereum and getting a coin out all on the Ethereum blockchain. And you can argue that the value of Ethereum, which went up enormously during that time, was highly, highly correlated to ICO activity and remains so now, right? I mean, Ethereum was up around, what, 1,000 over 1,000? For a while, and it's it's about one fifteen right now. Yeah, well, that's where I would say, like, if if Vitalik Buterin laments the idea that he used the term smart contract, well, it's a little bit of a double edged sword because if he had never called it a smart contract, who would have cared? And maybe only the true tech heads would have cared about these interesting scripts that can 
distribute coins when taking in other coins, right? Because smart contract, I mean, it's a catchy phrase. It's like a contract, but it's smart. It's one of those phrases that sort of lodges into your mind and like, oh, I hate existing contracts. Like regular contracts sucks. You got to negotiate this thing. You got to rewrite. You got to edit the contract. You have to get in a room and sign the thing. It's it's archaic. These things have been around for hundreds of years. The, the term contract for most people is not one that sparks joy. Not only that, but you've got <laughs> you've got behind that. You know what? Thousand years of English common law about right. contractual interpretation. You got to be an because, expert. You got to hire an attorney to look at these things. That's With right. a smart contract, you shouldn't have to do any of these things, because, right? Because because it's an entirely equityless document. Right. It is something that will, and you know, there aren't a lot of equityless documents that get enforced at, at English common law or at American common law because they sometimes produce unfair results. That's why we have doctrines like unconscionability and the like. Yeah, and you know, a smart contract is not out there trying to figure out, you know, if the person handing the coin over is 15 years of age, That's right. um, unable to enter into a contract according to state law, the geofencing thing, are they, where is this contract taking place? What's the jurisdictional? All these things that are questions for regular old contracts are, are well unsettled in the smart contract. If the, if the, you know, contract violates public policy, you know, for example, might have a difficult time enforcing a contract to buy heroin in Cook County. Um, you know, you can enforce that on the blockchain, unfortunately. So, Before I let the guys go, I asked them where they saw a blockchain 10 years from now. Where we are right now, to a large degree, we're very early days. Certainly, when we're looking at applications beyond, you know, Bitcoin, beyond payment, beyond store of value, it's very, very early. We have not yet begun to think about all of the ways that this can impact us. And I think, you know, to pronounce blockchain dead in anything beyond Bitcoin is like saying the internet was dead in like 97 when things weren't going that great, right? It's just way too early to say that. I think 10 years from now, it'll be a much more robust ecosystem and we'll, we'll have a lot of use cases that Zach and I will go back and listen to this and think, geez, why didn't we think of that? You know what I mean? Zach, 10 years from now? Yes, What's it going to look like? Someone is going to do something amazing with this technology. And we're going to all say, this is what it took. You know, we're going to start using some app on a daily basis to transfer money from ourselves to the companies that we buy products and services from or to our friends. And I know those apps exist right now, but those apps exist within a certain amount of friction that we can probably do away with with this technology. And someone's going to come out with something extremely simple and easy to use. And I don't know who it's going to be. If I did, I would go out and try to work with those people. And I would try to bring them on as a client or you know, figure out exactly what they're doing. But So we don't know who those people are right now. There are too many really, really smart and very dedicated people working with this technology for it to go nowhere. And I'm convinced of that. There are also a lot of very shady people who have nefarious goals working with this technology. And I think the deeper question is sort of which of those two, which of those two groups is, is going to win out here? Will the technology become skunked by the massive amounts of uh, fraud and, and scandal and scamming that we see with the, with the technology? But I tend to be a little, little more on the optimistic side. And I think good will win out over evil, and, and a handful of teams are going to create something undeniably awesome with this technology. So if uh, anybody wants to get a hold of you, Zach, how do they find you? Yeah, find me uh, at my law firm. I practice here in Chicago at Smolensky Rosario Law, 
And uh, you can email me at Zach at smorosslaw.com, S-M-O-R-O-S-L-A-W.com, and I'll get right back to you. You can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, where I am listed under my name, Zach with an H, Smolinski. Christian, if they can't get hold of Zach and they come looking for you, where do they get you? They can and they should. Uh, I am a principal at Much Law. My email address is C-A-U-T-Y at muchlaw.com. I'm also on Twitter, also on LinkedIn, and uh, I blog at uh, distributedcouncil.com. Well, that's it for today's show. As always, we appreciate you listening. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot me an email at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, etc., etc. If you want to learn more about anything we talked about today or get a hold of any of our guests, you can visit the episode page at tlpodcast.com. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next time.